Now you may be familiar with the band Genesis, uh, but a wise man named Phil Collins once said, I can't dance and I can't talk. The only thing about me is the way that I walk. Now, I like that, uh, I like that text for a number of reasons. I would not call myself a fan of the band Genesis by any means, but I must say that this song, in, in one way, it contains, it, uh, it contains a very profound biblical principle, and that's this. Much more important than the way you make yourself appear, the show that you put on, much more important also than the words that you say is the way that you walk. Talk is cheap. Anybody can put on a facade. Anybody can dance around and put on a show, but how you walk, the way that you walk, that's what really matters. Throughout the Bible, this word walk refers to how you live practically, day to day, in reality. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, this is what God's word says to you and to me. It says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Again, throughout the Bible, this word walk, it refers to practical living, how you live day to day. Because it's easy to dance, right? It's easy to put on a show, to wear a mask, to project something to others that you want them to see. To put on a show that you've got it all together, that everything's cool, that you're spiritual. It's also very easy to talk. It's easy to say the right things. But what really matters in the Christian life and in life in general, what really matters is the way that you walk, the way that you really are day to day when nobody's watching you, that's reality. And God's desire for you and for me is that we would walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. For the past several weeks, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians, and the name we've given to this series is Who Are You and What Are You Doing Here? Now, that would be pretty rude if it was a greeting, but we say that not as a greeting, but as two very important questions. One is a question of identity. Who are you, really? And the other one, the second one, which we're getting into now, is a question of mission. What are you doing here? What is the purpose with which God has left you here on earth? What are the things that he wants you to be about? This letter to the Ephesians, it's six chapters long and it breaks up nicely, for you guys who like outlines, it breaks up nicely into two basic sections, which are each three chapters long. Chapters one through three are all about who you are in Christ. And that's what we've been studying for the past several weeks. We've been discovering what the Bible says about who we were apart from Christ and who we have become and who we are becoming in Christ. And we've been learning how important it is to build our sense of identity not on the things that we have done in the past or the things that have been done to us, but on who God declares that we are in Christ. And now as we get into the second half of the book, what we see is chapters 4 through 6, our focus is going to be on this question. What are you here for? What are you doing here? What is it that God wants you to be about now that he has called you to be saved and redeemed in Christ? How should you walk? How should you live practically because of who you are now in Christ? It's interesting as we go through Ephesians to notice some of the different postures which are mentioned in this letter. I've got them up here on the screen for you. First, we learn that apart from Christ, we were 
dead and buried, right? We were in the grave spiritually. We were dead. When you put your faith in Christ, then God raised you up and he seated you. That was the next position. You were raised up and then you were seated in the heavenly places. And now we have been talking for the last several weeks about where we stand in Christ. And now that we know where we stand, now we are encouraged not only to stand, but to walk, to move forward. And how chapter 4 begins, it begins with the word therefore. Now that's an important word in the Bible. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to ask the question, maybe you know where I'm going with this, what's that therefore, therefore, right? So he asks the question, what's that therefore, therefore? It's a really important word in the Bible because essentially what it means is that everything that has come up until this point has been building up to a conclusion and now here it's going to be here's the conclusion here's what you should do with all that information that you just learned the word therefore when it occurs in the the new testament letters uh, first always doctrine is taught in these new testament letters and then there's this big crescendo right this big therefore go and do this and from that point on we're told how that doctrine how that stuff we've learned should affect how we live and walk practically and there are two things I want you to take note of from this. Number one is this. Doctrine is the foundation for action. Doctrine is the foundation for action. Why do we put such a big focus on studying the Bible here at Whitefields? Here's why. Because doctrine is the foundation for action. What you believe determines how you will behave. Many times in our culture nowadays, in this American culture that we live in, the focus is so much on practicality, right? We, we have these practical books, that self-help books, right? And the focus is on tips and strategies for you to have your best life now, right? Books are written on what you need to do to have a better marriage, what you need to do, steps you need to take to be more successful. But here's the thing that they leave out. They don't tell you why, right? They're leaving out the doctrine in a sense. They're leaving out the why. Like for example, why is marriage important at all? Why is it important that you be successful? Why is it important that you keep your family together? They don't give, the, they skip over the why and they just give you a lot of what's, right? In other words, uh, it's like building a house with no foundation. It'll stand for a little while, but if it has no foundation, eventually it's doomed to collapse because there's no foundation. And I've seen this happen many times where, where for some people their Christian walk, their Christian life is all about the what's. It's all about what they do for God, what they do, you know, actions, but they've missed the foundation, which is what God has done for them. And so because they have no foundation, after a while, they get burned out with all the what's, with all the tasks, and they start wondering, wait a second, why am I doing all this stuff anyways, right? Because here's the thing, you have to have the why before you can talk about the what, right? Doctrine is the foundation for action. Doctrine is the why which gives us the what, right? What God is and what, or who God is and what he's done for us, these are the whys that determine the what's, right? Which is how we should walk, therefore. The reason we walk is because we have been raised from the dead in Christ, spiritually. Because we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places and we've been, giving a, we've been given a standing in Christ. So doctrine is the foundation for action. Here's the second thing to take note of about doctrine. It's this. 
Studying doctrine is not a means to an end, or is a means to an end. It is not the end in itself. So studying doctrine is a means to an end, not the end in itself. And here's what I mean by that. The goal of studying the Bible is not to just collect a lot of cerebral information or to memorize a bunch of facts so you can beat your friends at Bible trivia, right? It, it, the goal of studying the Bible, the goal of learning who God is and what he's done for you, the only way that matters is if it actually affects your life, if it actually affects your actions and your heart. I can tell you all day long that God loves you, that Jesus died for you to save you, but until you apply that information, until it makes that, however long it is, think eight inches, something like that, that trip from your head to your heart, until that happens, that's just cerebral information. It's just intellectual information, and, it, and it's nothing more than information. And there are many people who do that. They have read the Bible. They've studied Christian doctrine for purely intellectual reasons. I know many people who understand the Christian faith theoretically, right? But it has no effect on their life practically or on their heart. For them, it's just information. So as we study doctrine as Christians, it's not just to gain information, but it's to apply those truths to our hearts and to let them transform us. Our goal in studying doctrine is this, to become disciples of Christ. We want to be disciples who worship, disciples who walk, and disciples who work. Disciples of Jesus Christ who worship Jesus, who walk with Jesus, and who work with Jesus to accomplish his purposes. So in the first half of this book, as we've been studying it, each week we posed a question, who are you? And we've been answering that question from our text from the scripture. Who are you in Christ? What is your identity? And now here in the second half of the book, we're going to change it up a little bit. And our question that we'll be asking every week and answering from the text is going to be this. What are you here for? What are you here for? And here's in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, which we're looking at today. Here's the answer. What are you here for? Here's why you're here to build up the body of Christ. That's why you're here. This is one of the reasons why you're here. You are here to build up the body of Christ. And there are three particular steps which are mentioned here about how we should go about building up the body of Christ. And we're going to look at these. Number one, maintain unity. Number two, get equipped. And number three, contribute. Say that again. Three particular practical steps to take to build up the body of Christ. Number one, maintain unity. Number two, get equipped. And number three, contribute. So read with me if you would in your Bibles. Please follow along. <coughs> we'll be in Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So because of what God has done for you in Christ, because he loved you when you were lost, when you were dead, because he raised you up, because he gave you new life and eternal life through faith in him. 
because he's given you a new name and a new identity and a new future in him, how therefore should you walk? How therefore do you walk worthy of that great and high calling? Here's one way. Bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now here's what we see in this section. The Ephesian church struggled with division. Now that's nothing new. Churches have struggled with division for the last 2,000 years, but it wasn't anything new at that time either. The Ephesian church struggled with division. They had to be instructed about the importance of preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. They had to be encouraged to be patient and long-suffering with each other. You know, the story is told of how Jesus... After he was finished with his ministry on earth, he ascended into heaven. And at the end of it, you know, this is at the end of his earthly ministry. And when he got up to heaven, he was met by the angels. And the angels asked him, you know, so Jesus, now that you're back in heaven, what's your plan for carrying out the work that you began down there on earth, you know, for the last three years? And Jesus said, all right, well, well, here's plan A, okay? I've got a couple dozen followers And I told them I wanted to meet together regularly. And I just put them in charge of telling the whole world about who I am and what I've done. And I just put them in charge of doing my work from now on. And the angels said, hmm, interesting, right? Well, well, I imagine these, if you handpick these guys, these must be some pretty spectacular people that you picked out. I mean, I'm sure you picked the cream of the crop, right? I mean, these must be like elite, like, uh, you know, SWAT team type, superhero type, influential people who can reach the whole world, right? And you said, well, kind of. I mean, mostly they're just average people. Some of them are blue-collar workers. A few of them are, you know, former prostitutes and, and various social outcasts. And the angel said, huh. Okay, well, all right, that's interesting. Well, that's plan A. Well, what do you got for plan B? And Jesus said, no, nah, I'm just messing with you. I don't got a plan B. I just got one plan, plan A. And, and uh, here's the point. We are God's plan A, and there is no plan B, okay? There's one plan, plan A. This church, the church, you know, which the Bible refers to as the body of Christ, we are God's plan a to carry on his mission and reach the world with his love and the message of the gospel you know the picture of the church in the new testament is this picture of a body right which is a picture of what it's a picture of a living organism which is made up of various parts each with a different function and a different ability And when we come together, what we do is we bring that which we can specifically bring, which we've been gifted to do, and we're able to do so much more together with our diversity than we would ever be able to accomplish on our own or if we were all the same. The story is told of a master carpenter who had a tool shed in his yard. And one day the tools in the tool shed decided to get together and have a meeting. So the hammer was presiding over the meeting and he called the meeting to order. And immediately the screwdriver stood up and said, you know what, I don't think there's any reason why this hammer should be leading this meeting. I'll tell you why, because you know what? He just hammers on everybody. He just bangs on everybody, pounds on us, and he just makes a lot of noise, and I'm sick of him. And the hammer says, well, what about you, screwdriver? All you do is spin in circles, you weakling. And the screwdriver says, well, oh, don't look at me. Look at the plane. His work is so... Um, his work is so shallow, right? Just barely 
touching the surface. He has no place here. And the plane said, well, me, maybe my work is shallow, but what about the sandpaper? He just rubs everybody the wrong way. I think we should get rid of him. And all the tools went on bickering and pointing out what it was that they didn't like about each other. And later on that day, though, the master carpenter came into the tool shed and he took each tool at the right time and in the right way and he used them to create something of great beauty and great usefulness. Now here's what it comes down to. We as the body of Christ, we have been entrusted with a mission. The mission of God by the power of the Spirit. We're called to be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this world through whom he can accomplish his work and his mission. And it's of primary importance, therefore, that we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Some of your translations will say strive, right? There's a, there's a place in the Bible where we're encouraged where it says the man of God shall not strive. Where we're told not to strive. But here's one, way, one place where we are told to strive. And this is this. Strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because you know what Satan loves to do? He loves to divide and conquer, man. He wants to divide families. He wants to divide relationships. He wants to divide communities. He wants to divide congregations. So how do you walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called in Christ? Here's how. By seeking unity in the body of Christ. And how do you do that practically? Well, it tells us very clearly by having an attitude of humility, by having an attitude of gentleness, by being patient with others and bearing with them in love. If we are God's plan A and there is no plan B, right, for carrying out Jesus' mission until he returns, then unity is of primary importance. If you want to build up the body of Christ, here's how you start. If you want the body of Christ to be strong and effective for carrying out the mission of Jesus, then here's how you start. You maintain unity. The first step in building the body is maintaining unity. The next step that we see here is to get equipped. From verse 7 we read, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So what we're told here is that each of us has been given a gift. Each of us, that means you. You've been given a gift. And the purpose of our gifts is this, to build up the body of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. But in order for us to be equipped for the work of ministry, God has called some people to specific ministries in the church, and they're listed here, five of them. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, 
pastors, and teachers. Now this is really important because what this does is it speaks to the question of what is the purpose and mission of the church? What is it that we're supposed to be doing here right now, for example? Uh, A few years ago, I read uh, the autobiography of a pastor who I look up to and respect very much. Uh, He's getting older now and he spent many years in ministry. And he wrote his memoirs a few years ago. And he he tells a story of how when he started out in ministry, uh, he was a pastor and, and he believed that he was under the, you know, belief, conviction that the primary purpose of the church is to evangelize the world, is to preach the gospel so people can come to church and hear it and believe it and be saved, right? So every Sunday he would preach an evangelistic message, right? And he would pick out different texts from around the Bible and he would preach an evangelistic message and he would invite people to put their faith in Jesus and be born again and be saved, right? But the thing that he came to realize is... Um, Every Sunday, he's preaching this message to the same 40 people, week in and week out. And they're already all saved, right? So he's inviting these people every week to receive Jesus and get saved, but everybody in his congregation is already saved, right? And so, so he got frustrated, of course, and he decided he's going to take a different angle, different approach. So he decided to start preaching at his church every Sunday about how they need to invite their friends and family and neighbors to come to church so that they can hear the gospel and get saved. And this is what he did. You know, he would kind of nag at them for a little bit about bring your friends, come on, you know, put the guilt trip on them. Like, if you really love Jesus, if you really love your friends, then you're going to invite him to church. And then, you know, he would preach the gospel message at the end. And and every now and then he says that he would get, you know, a new face, a new person in the church, some neighbors. But more or less, it was just the same 40 people every week, and they were already all Christians. So he was frustrated. And you can imagine that the people were frustrated. They go to church, they hear the same thing every week. It's good, but it's the same thing. And, uh, you know, he's kind of mad at them because they're not bringing more new people to church to get saved. And, And he ended up, like I said, putting this guilt trip on people. You know, if you really love Jesus, then you'd do it this better. If you really love Jesus, you'd bring your friends to church, right? So this went on for a while. He said it went on for, you know, years actually. Until he came across this portion of scripture right here in Ephesians chapter 4 that I just read. (coughs) Because what this text is essentially saying is this. That the primary purpose of the church and the primary calling of the person who's, who's called to be a pastor or a minister in the church... Is, is not to evangelize the world primarily, but here is what it is, and this is what the text says, to equip the believers for the work of the ministry, to train people to do the work of the ministry. And that understanding, well, that totally changed this guy's approach to ministry. And what he began to do was, was just teach people the Bible, right? He started with 1 John, and he went through it verse by verse, and, and eventually he got to the end of it, And then he taught another book of the Bible, just started teaching it, right? And eventually he taught through the entire Bible. And once he had done that, well, what else do you do? He just decided to start over and do it again. And this man taught through the Bible multiple times throughout his ministry. And the people who attended his church, they didn't just hear inspiring sermons. What they heard was they actually got trained in knowing the Bible. 
You see, when this guy realized that his job as a pastor and teacher was not primarily to evangelize the world, but was first of all to train and equip the saints so that they would be equipped to use the gifts that God had given them so that they could minister in God's name, well, that changed everything. And people in the church began to grow. And they no longer felt frustrated because they weren't hearing the same thing every week. And the pastor was no longer frustrated with the people in the church. And eventually, through this ministry, many, many people did come to know the Lord and put their faith in Jesus because here's what happened. This man was doing what God designed the church to be. In a place of equipping the believers for the work of the ministry. Each of you have been given gifts. You've been, there are ways that God has blessed you so that you can be part of his mission, what he's doing. And the job of the church, I feel that my job is to equip you and train you so that you can use your gifts, so that you're empowered to use your gifts effectively, so that you can become a disciple who worships the Lord, who walks with the Lord, and who works with the Lord for his purposes. And here's the point. All of us are called to be in the ministry, right? Some of the most effective ministry that happens, some of the, most, some of the times when, when the work of God is really done, that happens in your workplace. It happens in your home. It happens when you're working out at the gym or, or talking with somebody. Oftentimes, most of the time, it happens when it's not scheduled, right? It's not something you can plan or schedule. You're going about your life and you're faced with these opportunities to serve God and do the work of ministry and the job of the church is to equip you so that you will be prepared, so that you will be ready and that you will be given the tools and the training so that you're able to effectively minister and do the work of God as, his, as part of his body. So that's the second important step that you should go through in building the body of Christ. Get equipped. And the way God has ordained for you to get equipped is, is through those whom he has called to these particular ministries. Now here's what we read. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. You know, you know there can be a lot of debate over whether or not there are still apostles and prophets in the church today. Many people and most people would agree that, yeah, you know, evangelists, pastors and teachers, yes, obviously, those are, uh, those are active, present in the church today. But some people would say that the office of apostle was limited to the original 12, 13 apostles who were mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, and they would say, you know, other than that, there are no modern apostles. Others would disagree and say, of course, there's still modern apostles. It's not like God just changed his mind at some point. Well, here's how I see it. Uh, the apostles, if you look in the, in the New Testament, they had an overseeing ministry, right, which was very important in the early church. Their job was to oversee the churches, make sure that doctrinally they were teaching the truth, to cast vision, make sure everybody's following Jesus, going in the right direction, and staying on the right track. And this was also the job of the church fathers who came after them, right? People like in the first five centuries, you know, you could list a ton of them, but, you know, men like Ignatius and Augustine and Tertullian. And the word apostle, it simply means one who is sent. An apostle is one who is sent, and the ministry of an apostle is a governing ministry, overseeing, giving direction, not just to one body, but to many bodies, right? Right? And that's what Paul did, that's what Peter did, that's what John did. 
I think that if you think about apostolic ministry in this way, then of course you would say there are certainly people who fill that role in our generation as well. And, you know, they actually, in every generation, there are these people who play this important role of giving direction to beyond just one congregation, but to many. They, They fill the role of, we call them pastors of the pastors, right? Influential leaders who give guidance and how we should lead the church in the days that we live in today. <coughs> then we read about this other one and that there's also debate over, right? Prophets. Oh, to understand this, we have to understand that in the New Testament, a prophet is somebody who's more or less like an oracle for God in the sense that they receive a message from the Lord and they speak it out to people in a given situation. You know, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, verse 3, it says this. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their edification, encouragement, and consolation. So I believe that this is a spiritual gift that God still gives people today. I mean, edification, uh, encouragement, and consolation. Yeah, I'd say those are things that we still need even today. Uh, You know, personally, this is something that I pray for all the time, that God would give me a message directly from his heart to speak to a particular person or to speak here on Sundays. Now, someone might ask regarding this gift of prophecy. They might say, well, why do we need the gift of prophecy to tell us the heart of God when we have the Bible? Isn't that what the Bible's for, to tell us what God wants and what God's will is? Well, think about this. In Acts chapter 13... We read that in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. That's what it says there at the beginning of the chapter. And we read that at one time it says that they were praying and ministering unto the Lord. And God spoke to them, presumably through one of these prophets, and told them, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas because I have a special ministry for them. Now, as you know, that special ministry was for them to become missionaries and go out church planting, right? But here's the thing. That is not something you can read in the Bible, right? You can't turn to like Ezekiel chapter 3 and read, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul because I have a special ministry just for those guys, right? That's a distinct message for distinct people in a particular place and time. That's what the gift of prophecy is all about. It's an important gift for the church today, for people to be able to say, this is what God is speaking to our situation, to particular people in our particular setting. This is the word of God for us today. So then we we talk about evangelists. You know, there are obviously evangelists today. It's a spiritual gift to be able to communicate the gospel in an understandable and compelling way. And and what an important ministry this is. This is the ministry through which God brings people into the body of Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who has the gift of evangelism, but it's incredible, right? You can go on like YouTube and you can watch these old videos of Billy Graham and, and like guys like Greg Laurie. And if you listen to them and you listen to what they're saying, they're not really saying anything different than what anybody else is saying, right? What any other pastors are saying. But it's almost like they can just say anything they want and then say, all right, time to receive Jesus. And then everybody's like, yes, I'll do that. So, you know, Paul, Paul wrote to Timothy, this young pastor, and he told him this, do the work of an evangelist. Now, I, I used to work under a guy the first few years I was in Hungary, and I remember Um, we had a a friend come out from the States, a pastor, and my friend, uh, the the pastor I was working under, was telling this guy, 
I'm just not an evangelist, so I just don't do it. And this pastor pointed out to him, he said, hey, told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Even if you're not an evangelist, do the work of an evangelist. Pretend you are, right? In other words, you're still called to do the work of an evangelist, even if it's not your primary strength and gifting. Some people are, though, gifted with this great ability to draw people into the kingdom. And then we've got shepherds and teachers. The job of a shepherd, to feed the sheep, to protect them from wolves, to care for them. A good shepherd knows how his flock is doing and takes care of their needs. A good shepherd protects from danger and leads them to water and good pasture. A teacher, their job is, I put it this way, to take what is complex and make it simple. To take what is complex and make it understandable. Help people apply complex concepts to their lives practically. So five ministries listed here. And and what I would say about these is that I do not believe that these are necessarily five separate offices, right? Like, I'm an evangelist and now I have a name tag that says I'm evangelist and that's all I do. Sorry, that's it. Right? Or I'm a prophet and that's it. I, I believe that these are different ministries which are present in the church which God has given these ministries for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. And many times I believe that you'll find these ministries in one person sometimes. You know, like you'll find a pastor who also fills an apostolic role or a teacher who is also, you know, speaking prophetically the word of God to a particular situation. Or a pastor who's also an evangelist. So, Uh, These are different ministries in the church which have been given by God for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. That's the ultimate goal, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine that blows through. And, And you know, in our day, waves and winds of doctrine usually come in the forms of books or, you know, television programs. Anytime any new fad happens, right, some people are just ready to jump on board. Uh, What this text tells us is that the mature person is a person who is grounded. They're not just going to be tossed to and fro by every new thing that comes through Christian circles, by every new fad, by every person who comes along. And, you know, they always claim, I found this secret, you know, hidden in the book of Ezekiel, and everybody's overlooked it for 2,000 years, but now I've written this book, and if you buy it, then I will unlock the secrets of God for you, right? Get grounded in Christ. Become mature. Get equipped. And the way that you do that, here's how, by consistently being in the body and partaking of this five-fold ministry which God has ordained for us to grow and mature. And the final step, and I'll keep this one short, is once you have maintained unity, once you have gotten equipped, the next step is for you to contribute. Contribute to the body. Verses 15 and 16 say this. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's been said before that truth without love is brutality. That love without truth is sentimentality. But speaking the truth in love, that is Christianity. 
The way that the body grows is by each part of the body contributing that which they have to share to build up the body. Notice the words, the whole body, every joint, each part. What that means is that each of us has something to contribute and that we all need what each other has, right? In order to build up, to be built up and to grow. I also believe that actively contributing is a very important aspect of what it means to be a healthy Christian and a healthy person. So, how do we walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called in Christ? Here's how. By building up the body of Christ. This is part of our mission. It's what God has called us to be about as his people on mission with him. How do we go about building up the body of Christ? Three very practical ways. Number one, start with maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Number two, get equipped. And number three, contribute. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have called us to stand in Christ. Lord, you have raised us from the grave. You've seated us in the heavenly places. You've given us a standing in Christ. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk. Help us to walk worthy of that calling with which you've called us in Christ, Lord. That calling to be new, to be born again, to be a new creation, a calling to be ministers for you and hands and feet in your body. Lord, help us to walk worthy of that calling. Lord, help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, give us a patience and gentleness and long-suffering towards each other. Lord, help us to love each other. Let that be the sign that we are your disciples. And Lord, I pray that this would be a place of equipping, that as we come and learn your word, learn your ways, Lord, that we would be equipped to use the gifts that you've given us. Lord, I pray for everyone in here, Lord, that you would give them a way to contribute to building up your body. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who does not yet know you. Lord, would you draw them unto yourself Would you show them, Lord, that you died for them, for their sins, that they could be saved and born again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.